Welcome to Beg to Differ, the Bulwark's weekly roundtable discussion featuring civil conversation across the political spectrum from center-right to center-left. I'm Josh Barrow. I'm sitting in this week for Mona Charon, and I'm joined by the regular panel of Bill Galston, the Brookings Institution, the Wall Street Journal, Damon Linker of The Week, and Linda Chavez of the Niskanen Center. I ordinarily write the Very Serious newsletter on Substack. You can find that at joshbarrow.com. I also host the Very Serious podcast. Here on Beg to Differ, we're going to begin today with big news from France. Centrist Emmanuel Macron was re-elected to another term as president of France, and in the end, the vote wasn't that close. He beat right-wing nationalist Marine Le Pen by 17 points. Still, that's down from over 30 points five years ago, and there were polls a few weeks ago that had this election actually pretty close to a tie. Damon, the story of European politics over the last decade or so has been this struggle between an internationalist pro-European establishment that includes traditional parties of the center-right and the center-left, and on the other side, populist nationalists, more often from the right, though sometimes from the left. This result in France looks like a big win for the establishment, for centrist ideas on the economy, for European integration, for a robust military alliance with NATO in the US and against Russian aggression. Am I right to have that take on it, that this is a win for the center, for the establishment and for NATO? Well, uh, I guess I would say that it is in the short term, obviously. I mean, this was a very big win. The margin was as big as, you know, we haven't seen a margin that large in the United States since Ronald Reagan won re-election in 1984. So if we had a margin like that in an American election here, it would be treated as a massive generational landslide. And it was that. However, First of all, within the context of France, it's not as unusual. As you said, five years ago, Macron won by actually quite a bit more. And all the way back to an earlier generation, there were even bigger landslides, like when Marie Le Pen's father was uh, beaten by uh, Jacques Chirac by about 60 points. So they do have landslides in France, partly as a result of what I think of as a not great electoral system that combines elements of parliamentary and presidential election, but that's sort of a, a side note. I would say that in the medium to long term, I don't really see this result as vindicating the center as much as some might say. Clearly, when you have Le Pen as the other person running and the other candidate is someone from the broad center, you can definitely do this move that we've seen in Israel and that we saw attempted in Hungary just last month, where you basically run an anyone but Le Pen campaign and Macron benefited from that five years ago and yet again now because that family name is kind of notorious in France with links all the way back to Vichy and with sort of neo-fascist ideas on immigration and other things. So you can definitely still win in the center if you're running against that, but it's also the case that Macron's party and Marche, which is means forward in English, isn't much of a party. It's sort of a personal brand for Macron. He cannot run again in five years. And the two more traditional long-term center-left and center-right party, the Republicans on the right and the Socialists on the left, have totally collapsed uh, over the last 10 years. They got a combined 26% five years ago, which is way down by historic standards. And this time they combined pulled only 7% in the first round of the vote. So what's going to happen five years from now? Um, it's anyone's guess. It could well be that we end up with a far left and a far right candidate making it into the final vote. And then we'll be left with one or the other of those after the second round. So the popular struggle continues. 
in the short term, well done. In the longer term, we still have some work to do, I think. Bill, uh, you also wrote on this this week. I, I want to sound a couple of more positive notes than we got there from Damon, which is, you know, first of all, this was a large margin, even if it wasn't as large. And leaders all around the world are playing a difficult hand right now. There are inflation problems in Europe. They haven't been as bad as they've been in the U.S., although they are more impacted by the Ukraine crisis and the fossil fuel effects of that. So the economy has been bad for approval ratings for politicians all over the world. And Le Pen, part of how she was able to do better this time than last time is that she moderated on some key issues, including France's relationship to Europe, which I think, first of all, is a sign of a healthy political ecosystem. I don't want politicians like Le Pen getting votes, but if the thing that they have to do to get more votes at the margin is to be less extreme, that seems like the political system creating good incentives all the way across the political spectrum, even though she essentially managed to get to his left on certain economic issues. I mean, Macron was out there with this very unpopular idea that he wants to raise the retirement age. It's the sort of centrism that I think actually tends to push away voters rather than draw them in. That's not a broadly popular idea. It might be necessary. But I mean, in spite of all of that, we still saw this strong win, which I think he actually played this hand quite well, given the circumstance that he was in, which is why I wouldn't have expected him to run up as romping a margin as he got five years ago. What's your take? Are you as sanguine about that? Macron has an opportunity. Uh, One of my reservations about the opportunity is that he has taken the entire responsibility on his own shoulders. As Damon pointed out, the traditional center-left and center-right parties in France, uh, the socialists and the republicans, have been destroyed. And so Macron is now functioning without a safety net. If he gets it wrong, and with a very personalistic legislative assemblage, not quite a party, behind him, France has no safety net. That worries me because if you take a longer view, over the past 10 years, support for both the far left and the far right have nearly doubled. In 2012, they totaled together 29% of the vote. This year in the first round, they got 52%. The forces of the center are notably weaker than they were 10 years ago. Uh, So I am worried that if Macron stumbles in his second term, which is eminently possible, the viable center-left, center-right alternatives will not exist and the door will be open for something far worse. Linda, I know you had some thoughts on how this relates to political forces that we've seen in the United States, the rise of Le Pen and and the rise of Trump. What do you see as lessons here or as ways that this might provide a window into what we can expect in our own politics? Well, I was focused very much on this election and the impact that it would have on uh, the war that's going on between Russia and Ukraine. Obviously, Marine Le Pen's pledge to pull out of NATO would have been a disaster. And so I was very concerned about that. But you're right. My main interest in what is going on, not just in France, but throughout Europe, is the rise of populism, much of it in response to anti-immigrant, anti-refugee policies in those countries. And it was the thing that propelled Donald Trump to the nomination in the Republican Party here. The Republican Party in the United States continues to push the immigration issue. We, you know, we see it even this last week with Governor Abbott in Texas, Governor DeSantis uh, raising this issue. 
Ohio, which is as far as I know, not moved geographically, is not a border state. Apparently, illegal immigration and the influx of illegal immigrants seems to be the thing that's roiling that. So it was encouraging that in the midst of the greatest refugee crisis that we have seen since the Second World War, with millions, literally millions of refugees spilling over from Ukraine into their neighboring countries, that we did not see this kind of reaction. And it did not seem to foment that anti-immigrant, xenophobic kind of fear that has really propelled the far right in Europe. So I think that was good news. Now, you know, the left will look at that and see the message that is long as the refugees that are coming across borders have blonde hair and blue eyes, they will be welcomed. If they are darker, they will not. I'm not so sure that is the issue. I do think that there is a big difference when you have refugees coming over, particularly from the Middle East, from Muslim countries, uh, with very, very different cultures, that it is harder to assimilate them. And Europe does not have a great history in assimilation. But all of that is to say that Marine Le Pen was not able to take the kind of message that her father has taken, that she's used in the past, and be able to turn this into a winning issue for her this time around. Doesn't mean it won't happen in the future. And it could very well be that even though the Ukrainians are being welcomed throughout uh, Europe and certainly in Eastern Europe, where they're you know obviously coming in in greater numbers, that that may not stand. It depends on how long the war goes on. It depends on what kinds of economic pressures are put to bear because of uh, refugees in those countries. I mean, Poland, for example, has just a huge number of people to deal with, and it is going to put enormous strains on that country. So I think we watch what happened in France. We breathe a little sigh of relief that it didn't go badly, but uh, doesn't mean that the era of anti-immigrant, anti-refugee sentiment that has really given rise to the populist movement around the world uh, is over yet. I think it's a really interesting parallel that the centrality of immigration in, in populist movements in both Europe and the U.S., even though I think the underlying immigration politics are, for some of the reasons you noted, Linda, quite different in the two places. I mean, the, the U.S. has this very long tradition of immigration. Public opinion has actually moved significantly in a pro-immigration direction over the last 30 years or so. In the 1990s, people would tell pollsters much more that they wanted less immigration to the U.S. Now they're more open to higher immigration levels. There's a lot of cultural commonality between the U.S. and some of the countries in Latin America that are major drivers of immigration to the U.S., more so than the major drivers of immigration to Europe. The flip side of that is that European establishment politicians have really responded to those concerns by moving significantly to the right on immigration. I mean, part of how Macron won this election against Marine Le Pen was that he became significantly more of a hardliner on immigration, not to the extent that she is. But it was sort of acknowledging that aspect of public opinion and moving to do it. I mean, David Frum's line is always that, you know, either you can enforce immigration law or let fascists get in and do it for you. And so in, in the U.S., Damon, what I feel like I haven't seen is any of that shift in the Democratic Party, which is a little frustrating, part because they would not have to go nearly as far as someone like Emmanuel Macron has to go. There is not overwhelming demand for the Stephen Miller immigration policies that would have sharp reductions in legal immigration to the U.S. But I think there is a demand for order at the border, 
for actual enforcement of our immigration laws so that the people who are immigrating to the U.S. are the people that by public policy we decided should be immigrating to the U.S. And I feel like there just hasn't been an effort to show a commitment to that in the way that there was to a significant extent during the Obama administration. It it feels like that shift that establishment politicians have made in Europe, you're not even seeing a, a much smaller version of that from Democrats here in the U.S. Yeah, that's right. The immigration issue is a kind of microcosm of a lot of problems that we have in this country, a kind of dysfunctionality with our institutions as they meet up with public opinion. So if you look at kind of tracking polls, I think Pew has one of these. What you see on immigration is a kind of in the aggregate, a drift that toward being more open to immigration. But if you really look closely at how different positions are changing over time, what you see is in the current situation, roughly one third for each position. So one third is very pro-immigration, one third is very anti-immigration, and one third is in the middle, thinks it should roughly stay where it is. Now, on one dimension, you could look at that and think, oh, look how balanced and moderate we are. We're kind of represented equally all across the spectrum. But when it comes to trying to get together a coalition and get something accomplished, what that ends up meaning is that a big chunk of Democrats want, if not open borders, at least something in that direction, just very open, let lots of people in, not really talk about enforcement, see that as a kind of expression of xenophobia and racism. And even to bring it up is somehow a moral black mark. And then on the other side, you have that kind of Trumpist figures on the Republican side who simply want no more immigration at all, especially if it's from Mexico and countries to the South. And even at the furthest extreme, some people who would like to deport the ones who are here. And then in the middle, you have, you know, kind of Probably a lot of Americans who don't really think about the issue that much, but if they're kind of cornered on a telephone call and asked what they think, they're like, nah, yeah, you know, immigration, that, you know, overall, that's pretty good. That's fine. But they're not committed. But the problem is that the two other factions on the left and the right are far more committed to the issue. And so what you end up with is deadlock that just can't get anything done. And I think we've seen that play out repeatedly over and over again from the kind of post-2012 moratorium or memo that passed around on the right that almost led to, you know, bills being passed in Congress and Obama signing them, that falling apart, and then the entire uh, move toward Trump running on that issue right at the center of his campaign as a kind of statement that we will never let them make a deal. You know, Marco Rubio's ambitions for the presidency were scuttled for at least a decade because of being involved in that move that was toward some kind of a settlement on this issue and would involve some kind of amnesty. A large portion of Republicans just absolutely will not compromise on that issue. So it is true that where we seem to be sort of stuck, and just as the Republicans won't budge on it similarly as you kind of cued me up, the Democrats don't seem particularly eager to do any moderation of their own from the other direction because their most passionate faction on the issue wants the opposite. Bill, I know you want to make a point, but we're going to take a quick break and then I'll come back to you. People say puffiness and bags under the eyes are the hardest things to get rid of. Until now. Introducing Genucel Plant Stem Cell Therapy. Some studies show that plant stem cell therapy can help target eye puffiness and bags. Due to new technology, Genucel 
is an incredibly powerful natural serum. And with its instant effects, it's guaranteed to show results in as little as 12 hours or your money back. That's right. Some users saw results in only 12 hours with dramatic improvement in two weeks. Look, I used to be skeptical about all of these things. What can a lotion do for you? But maybe I was kidding myself because I have been using this and I can say that when you put it on, the skin around your eyes does begin to feel a little firmer, a little bit better. It's a pleasant sensation and I'm really enjoying that eye cream and I'm actually using a bunch of their products and the eye cream is great. Now, GenuCell contains eight extra ingredients and uses plant stem cell technology to help get longer lasting and brilliant results. Go to GenuCell.com slash beg to differ right now and try risk-free. You can say goodbye to puffiness and bags today. Order right now with our special code beg to differ and get an instant 10% off your order. GenuCell promises the best skin care, best results, or your money back. Go to GenuCell.com slash Bulwark, GenuCell.com slash Bulwark. Okay, Bill Galston, you're up. Well, here's a thought experiment for you. In 2013, the Gang of Eight Bill got all 54 Democratic senators on board, along with 14 Republicans. If that same bill were put on the floor of the Senate today, I suspect that support for it would be in the single digits. And that's how much the two parties have drifted in opposite directions during this 10-year period. Really, you think you couldn't even get a significant number of Democrats to support it? What, because Not anymore. Of, because of the border enforcement provisions? Yes. Or, yeah. Yes. It's interesting because right now there's actually, in theory, a conversation happening in the Senate about a possible immigration policy compromise that's driven a little bit by the changing political environment. One of the new focuses when we talk about immigration in the U.S. is inflation and the labor shortage and do we need more visas for guest workers? Do we need more legal immigration overall? to address the fact that businesses are having such difficulty hiring and staffing up right now. And so you have Senator Tom Tillis, a Republican from North Carolina, who's not an especially moderate Republican, in theory, working with Democrats on a compromise proposal on that. Now, I'm Bill, for some of the reasons you suggest, I'm really skeptical that that can move through Congress. I'm just a little surprised at the sort of muscle memory about, you know, there's sort of a list of things that when the parties need to try to find something to do together, uh, where there's more overlap. Immigration reform used to be something that was on that list, but it felt like Donald Trump really identified that it was improperly on the list, that that was not the place where there was a voter groundswell for the particular kind of compromise that you could get out of the center. And so I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm wondering what you make of the fact that that's in theory on the agenda this week. Yeah, in theory. Uh, <laughs> and I, I wish them well, but I'll believe it when I see it. Among many Democrats, setting aside the border security issues, the idea of moving away from family reunification as the centerpiece of immigration policy towards a more economically based policy, which Canada adopted to its great benefit about a generation ago, That idea is anathema and programs of guest workers, however you want to dress it up, are equally unpopular. And it is possible, I suppose, that if there were an agreement at the elite level, an agreement between the president and Mitch McConnell to create a zone of possibility for a serious conversation 
about a compromise, something might happen. But I am very skeptical that the senators can get together and try to work this issue bottom up without the buy-in of their respective leaders. Linda, before we break, I want to get your thoughts on that. Go ahead. I think Bill is on the whole right. On the other hand, I think the big mistake, and it is a mistake that goes back to the George W. Bush era, is the idea of comprehensive immigration reform. I do not think there is a comprehensive immigration reform bill that could pass anytime soon. I mean, there just isn't. So then the question is, how do you break it up? Tom Tillis is not pushing this idea because he's suddenly gotten religion on immigration and thinks immigrants are great for the country and we need more of them. This is based on his representing an agricultural state, a state that has lots of poultry farms, that has lots of other kinds of farms, and that needs workers. And so I think you're going to see pieces of immigration legislation that do have a chance of getting support. And while Bill is right that uh, the Democrats have been loath to abandon the idea of family reunification as the basis for our immigration system, I think looking at it in terms of passing piecemeal bills that deal with certain sectors like the agricultural sector that would, in fact, move away from this notion of you get to come to the United States if you have close relatives here and get toward uh, we're going to bring you in if we have jobs that we can't find others to fill and you have the skills that are needed to perform those jobs, both at the high end and the low end, that that kind of bill might have some future. And I think that's what you're going to see. You're also, at some point, we're going to have to deal with the millions of young people who came as children, the so-called dreamers, whose status has been basically put on hold. There's a sort of Damocles uh, hanging over their head with a court decision out of Texas that could, in fact, upend their status here. The administration has been busy trying to deal with that by writing actual regulations having to do with adjustment of status uh, for these young people. But if something does not pass muster, if you don't see the decision which the Supreme Court bounced back to the Texas District Court, if the judge in that decision ends up saying that what the administration is doing on the Administrative Procedures Act is not sufficient, you could end up having a real crisis with lots of young people who are gainfully employed, who've gone to not just high school, but many of them to college, who are filling jobs as nurses, as doctors, and other very necessary jobs in our society that they could end up finding their status no longer secure. And then we're faced with, do we really want to deport these kids? Mm -hmm. So I do think there are some compromises that can be reached, but I don't think it's going to be the kind of overall grand immigration reform that I've been advocating for for 30 years or more, and that you know I think probably does not have the support of enough Republicans ever to be able to pass, and even Democrats would not favor the kind of skills-based approach that I think we need to move forward to in the future. We're going to talk about Twitter and Elon Musk in a moment, but before we go to that, Bill, I want to ask about something that you mentioned in your column, because you're somewhat pessimistic about European politics and the center. But you also suggested that this might be a moment where you could have a serious 
third party center movement here in the United States, especially if we had a, a rematch between Joe Biden and uh, Donald Trump in the 2024 election. I was a little surprised by that. Can you sketch out why that opportunity would be there? Yeah, it's quite simple. A rematch between Joe Biden and uh, Donald Trump would bring together in one election two of the most unpopular candidates in recent memory. And I know for a fact, although I'm not at liberty to name names, that serious elected officials in both political parties are considering this option seriously. Now, whether it's a good idea or not is a different question altogether. But there is discontent in the center with a choice between a Trumpified Republican Party on the one hand and a Democratic Party that seems to have lost its ability to put the left wing of the party in its place rather than yielding to it on a regular basis. So there is an opening. What would happen if someone moved to fill it is an interesting and somewhat imponderable question. My fear is that uh, the effort might very well end up taking more out of the Democratic candidates hide than the Republicans, which I doubt is the intention of the elected officials who are considering this strategy. But on the other hand, there is a case to be made that we may be nearing a kind of Macron moment in the United States where the two political parties that we've had for more than a century are sort of like rotten oaks that can be blown over with a sufficiently large wind. I'm skeptical of this. I beg to differ, as it were. Do you guys do that as a bit on the show here? or uh... <laughs> all, all the time. All okay. the time. You describe this in the column as, you know, the sort of candidacy that we haven't seen since Ross Perot in 1992, who took 19% of the vote. But I think, you know, sort of a defining feature of politics around that time in the U.S. was a sense that the two major parties were too similar to each other, that it didn't matter who won these elections. And I think that creates an environment that gives people permission to vote for a third-party candidate because people were not terrified of what would happen if George Bush Sr. or Bill Clinton won that election. People didn't have to worry so much about the spoiler thing that you described there. You know, what if I break away and it causes the other side to win? This environment of extreme polarization that we're in is upsetting to people in the center, but I think it actually makes it harder to run this sort of campaign because of the risk that you will end up on the wrong side of that polarization, that the candidate who you dislike even more for being even farther away from you could come into power because of it. I mean, I think, you know, the, the reason that this worked in France is because France has this two-phase election system where all the candidates run in one primary, and then the two candidates who finish at the top proceed into the general election. So Macron only needed, only in the range of a bit less than a quarter of the vote in order to get into that round. And then he was closer to the median voter than Marine Le Pen, and he won going away. I, I think in the U.S., where you have seen a politics that looks sort of like this is in a handful of states that use electoral systems that create ways to run up the middle like that. You have ranked choice voting in Maine. Mm -hmm. uh, in Alaska, basically, Lisa Murkowski built this system for herself by running as a write-in candidate when she was denied renomination in 2010, beating the Republican who would beat her in the primary. But now Alaska has a system where there will be one blanket primary and then ranked choice voting among the top four candidates. And so you have a handful of states that create a way for people to run up the center try to win that way. You even see Senator Bill Cassidy from Louisiana moderating to a significant extent in, in advance of what's likely to be a run for governor, um, where it could be advantageous to him to be a Republican, but not as conservative as the other Republicans, because Louisiana uses a system like this. So I think, you know, if we rolled that out in more states, 
we could have a more vital center. I mean, the, you have a number of these senators in the middle of the United States Senate who, you know, in a, in a more parliamentary system, they would rule the day. You would basically have Prime Minister Lisa Murkowski at the head of a coalition building up a majority by coming in from the center. But I just, I don't think the U.S. electoral system is built for that. It traps people in the two political parties for better or for worse. And if you're going to try to move to the center, you, you sort of have to do it from within one of those two political parties. Well, that's a powerful case, which is why the fundamental threshold question in a single election rather than two election format for the election of the chief executive is whether you can win in the first round. So it's a sort of a winner bust strategy. And the question of whether this could reorder the American party system in the same way that the emergence of the Republican Party reordered the American public system is an analytical question that some people are thinking about. I incline to the view that victory for a new center party is not really within reach. There are others who are seriously exploring the possibility that I'm wrong about that. That's as much as I can say. Linda or or Damon, do either of you want to get in on this? Not particularly. I'm extremely skeptical of third party bids for the presidency. I mean, I don't have much to say about it other than as long as we have the electoral college, it's really extremely unlikely to ever work because the electoral college requires that you not only have support, but have it spread across lots and lots of states. You have to have a lot of territorial breadth to your support. And I I think that given the current alignment of things, I, I can't imagine any candidate accomplishing that. So that's a big problem. Linda? I agree that on the presidential level, this doesn't work, and it doesn't work in large part because of the electoral college system. But, you know, we saw something interesting happen last week with Evan McMullen running for the U.S. Senate, challenging Senator Lee. He got the agreement of the Democratic Party not to nominate their own candidate. And so presumably, you know, he might have a fighting chance in defeating Senator Lee. I actually proposed in a column some months ago that Liz Cheney would benefit if the Democrats in Wyoming would decide not to field a nominee in her race and that she might come forward. So I think we might see efforts around the edges in particular states in both congressional and Senate races where you might have that kind of moderating influence by one party or the other deciding in this case, it would probably be almost always Democrats deciding not to nominate somebody when you had either a moderate or in the case of Liz Cheney, she's no moderate. She's a bedrock conservative, but nonetheless, one who understands the importance of democracy. And so, you know, maybe there is some future for that kind of accommodation to take place. Notably, there is a little bit of room for that in Wyoming, which has an open primary system. Anyone can vote in the Republican primary. And there was an effort to change the law about that to basically make it harder for Liz Cheney to win again, because Democrats, if they don't want her replaced by someone who's in line with Trump, they can vote in that Republican primary. The state legislature did not intervene to change that. So there is that little opportunity there in Wyoming. I want to take a quick break, uh, and then we will come back and talk about Twitter. If you're like me, you share your home, not just with humans, but with animal friends. And while they're wonderful companions, they also have odors, they have dander, they have hair. Well, let me talk to you about Eden Pure Thunderstorm Air Purifiers. 
Their proven oxy technology quickly destroys viruses, odors, mold, and more. It cleans the air of allergy-causing particles so you can breathe easy again, and it freshens up your home. It gets rid of any odor, like litter boxes, trash cans, cigarette smoke, even dirty diapers and cooking smells. With over 200,000 thunderstorms sold, you know it works. You never have to breathe dirty air again. And there are no filters to buy. And it takes up no floor space. You just plug this unit into the wall. It's almost silent, so it's great for use in any room, really. You can use it in your bedroom. We do. And we also have one in the room where the cat's litter box is. And honestly, of course, I'm very diligent about cleaning the cat's litter box, but with the Eden Pure, you would never know it was there. Plus, all the units come with a six-foot USB cord, and so they are compact, great for traveling. You can use it in hotel rooms or wherever you might be going. So go to EdenPureDeals.com, enter the discount code MONA3 to save $200. That's Three thunderstorm air purifiers for under $200. Shipping is free. We are back on Beg to Differ. Uh, The other big piece of news to talk about this week, Elon Musk's offer to buy out Twitter has been accepted. And a lot of people have a lot of opinions about this. You see conservatives who are really, in some cases, overjoyed about it. They have a lot of complaints about the way Twitter has done moderation in terms of what content it allows, what people it's kicked off. Elon Musk's talking points are very big on that he wants more free speech on Twitter. Conservatives particularly complain, and I think complain for good reason, about the suppression of the New York Post's coverage of what really does seem to have been Hunter Biden's laptop in the last days of the 2020 campaign. The Twitter actually for a time made it impossible to even share a link to that story on the claim that it was some sort of, you know, hacked material Russian op. But that's not a standard that Twitter has applied uniformly across its platform. There's other news stories like ProPublica got all those tax records of the wealthiest Americans. Those were illegally released. And Twitter, I think quite appropriately, has allowed people to talk about that on there because it's news. And so you have this sense among conservatives, essentially, that Twitter has had its thumb on the scale. Of course, a lot of liberals are very upset about the Musk purchase. They're very concerned about harassment and abuse on the platform, about right-wing extremism. They're concerned that Donald Trump will be allowed back on platform. And then, of course, you have these concerns about billionaire control of the information ecosystem, although I think it's important to note there are already a lot of other billionaires with major footprints in this space, including Jeff Bezos and Mike Bloomberg, who have not drawn quite the same level of outrage. Damon, how does this matter? Are we going to notice that Elon Musk is in charge at Twitter? Are people on Twitter going to notice? And are normal Americans who don't use Twitter, are they going to notice? Well, uh, geez, that's a big question. I I think, well, we obviously don't know yet. Uh, The biggest way that we would notice that Musk is there is if he allows Donald Trump back on the platform. That would be a huge event for our political system. And whether or not individual Americans who aren't on Twitter notice it directly it would have a big impact on the shape of the burgeoning 2024 presidential race as we get closer to it if he's back on there. Now, exactly how that even would play out isn't that clear because him being banned from Twitter has probably been very good for the Republican Party. 
I mean, it's an ambiguous thing, right? He's on Twitter and that allows him to speak directly to his biggest fans who get very, very excited at how he's constantly trolling the left and the Democrats and they get very excited, but it also maximally activates his biggest critics and those who hate him the most. And so what you end up with and what we had for basically the year and a half leading up to the 2016 election and then for the four years of the Trump administration, you have a kind of madhouse atmosphere on Twitter where the president is tweeting crazy things and then journalists and other critics are constantly responding to it and saying, it's the end of democracy. This is insane. How can this man be president and say these things? And then it just goes round and round 24 hours a day. So if we return to that, as well as Musk allowing a lot more of kind of right-wing trolls who have been banned also since the last election, if they all kind of come swarming back, then Twitter kind of goes back to the crazy mode that was its default during the Trump presidency. And that does have an impact on our politics. And there's also the question, as we saw a little bit this week, there seemed to be some anecdotal signs that some progressives were ditching the platform. I mean, some prominent progressive accounts like Neera Tandon, the the Democratic strategist and policymaker, uh, she tweeted at one point saying, I've lost 2,000 followers in the last 24 hours. Anybody else? I mean, I've lost about 50, which is unusual. I don't usually drop by that much at one time. And that's all been since Monday when the news broke about Musk buying it. So it could be that 50 progressives who followed me have left, or it could be that they're playing with the algorithmic dials behind the scenes in ways that are leading to these changes. It's hard to say. I mean, does Twitter really matter in the scheme of the world? On one dimension, not really, because this, you know, as people always say, it's not the real world. It's not America. Most Americans aren't on it. Even those who are, most don't tweet that much. It's not one of the world's top 10 largest social media platforms. No. It has much less reach than, than TikTok or Facebook. That's right. But the people it reaches are influential. Exactly. Just as in the 1970s, the little public interest journal that was started by uh, Irving Kristol and Daniel Bell was only read by around a thousand people. But those thousand people were incredibly influential within Washington and within the political system. And it, it punched hugely above its weight because most of those people who read it, each one of whom had a lot of influence. So... Similarly, on Twitter, what you're seeing, if you sit on it and you mostly follow journalists and other kind of high information people in our country, are is a kind of conversation among elites, and they kind of amongst themselves argue about stuff and decide what's important in a way that has tons of second-order knock-on effects for what journalists cover, what politicians think is important, what they say and how messaging gets shaped. And so you can very much not be on Twitter and go along with your life just fine. What you basically see if you're on it and observe it is the kind of hive mind of the country's elites talking to itself and figuring out what to do. And so the content of who's involved in that conversation has an impact on what the end result is. 
Linda, I'm never quite sure what to make of these sort of national conversations about free speech because the, the Constitution creates certain rights about what the government won't do to you with regard to the ways that you speak. But we also have this ethos of free speech that even though you know Twitter has, is under no legal or constitutional obligation to allow any particular type of content on its site, we have a lot of opinions about the way that a platform should be run, the way that media outlets should behave, the way that private universities and other institutions should interact with the way that the people associated with them speak, the way that employers do that. Are there rules? Are there are there norms that tell us, you know, I mean, for example, how Twitter should be run or, or more broadly, is there, does that ethic tell us something useful about whether these institutions are working as they're supposed to or not? Well, I argued uh, at the time that uh, Donald Trump was uh, being banned from Twitter, that Twitter was a private company. They had the right to decide who could play on their field and who could not and what the rules were. And I think that was the right position to take. Elon Musk is going to change those rules and may let Donald Trump back in. I don't think the world is going to end if that happens. Uh, It might actually end up hurting Trump in the long run. But I'm one of those Luddites who never looks at Twitter. The only time I (laughs) go to my Twitter account is if I happen to be here in the Washington area and I'm have a home in Colorado and I turns out there's a fire in Boulder and I can't get any news because I don't live there. I go to Twitter and look to see, you know, what is being reported in Boulder. When the Ukraine war broke out, I went immediately to Twitter to see the kinds of things that were being reported because the the regular news media wasn't up to speed yet. Uh, But I think I'm probably more like most Americans than maybe others on this panel are who not only tweet themselves, but follow others and think that the conversations that occur on Twitter are very important. I don't think it matters all that much. And yeah, I understand Damon's point that it is a kind of conversation among elites. Uh, These kinds of conversations used to take place in a somewhat different model when what appeared on the Washington Post or the New York Times front page would be what dominated the three network evening news programs. So there's always been this kind of talking to each other among the elites and deciding what news stories were important and what were not. But you know what Elon Musk does with Twitter, I think it's his business. It's his money. He can spend it the way he wants. If he wants to open it up and have no rules at all apply, Yeah, I think that's his business and not mine, and and I don't care. Let's take a quick break, and then I'm going to come back and and ask Bill about whether we should care. This episode of Beg to Differ is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show, which features in-depth interviews with some of the world's most fascinating minds, like Charles Koch and Neil deGrasse Tyson. Every Friday, Jordan also releases a Feedback Friday episode to respond to listener questions, covering everything from conventional problems like leaving a dream job to doozies like helping someone escape an abusive relationship. You can also hear the latest news about Russia featuring a heavy-hitting interview with Garry Kasparov and his experiences with authoritarian governments, and that's just the beginning. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show, that's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R, in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening now. We are back on Beg to Differ. Bill, 
what Linda was laying out there, I think, is, is correct as a, as a legal matter. Twitter is a private company, and whoever own it, owns it can decide how they want to run it, and they don't have legal obligations to moderate or allow speech in certain ways. But a lot of people have opinions about what Twitter ought to do. And a lot of people have opinions more broadly about whether the New York Times should try to strive for journalistic objectivity or should have a more viewpoint-driven approach to news coverage. And again, you know, it's their legal right to do any of the things that we want there. But I think, you know, we have in a society, these institutions affect all of us. It's valid that we have opinions about the way they should run. And so, I mean, do you look at these things? I mean, is there a right answer in the case of Twitter about how they should run, whether Donald Trump should be allowed on Twitter, and more broadly, the way that these institutions need to interface with speech in order to achieve certain desirable outcomes in society. I think there's a lot of confusion about this subject, and I probably share it. <laughs> Let me say that at the outset. But imagine a continuum, at one end of which is Hyde Park in London, where anybody can bring a soapbox into the park and stand up and say whatever he or she wants to say. At the other end of that, you have a newspaper where there is an editorial system that decides using various criteria, and in the case of many newspapers, political criteria, what shall appear and what shall not. And my sense is that a lot of Americans think that the new information systems, things based on internet platforms, are or should be Hyde Park. I think that's a fundamental confusion. As a constitutional and legal matter, I think Linda is entirely correct. Now, this is part of a long debate in the United States about the impact of private power on politics. Uh, but given our basic constitutional structure, there will always be private power that has an impact that some people don't like on the political system. The question is, whether the remedy for private power is worse than the disease. What do we do if we start trying to legislate, except at the margins, where issues like child abuse may be involved? What happens if we start legislating about what privately owned news outlets or opinion outlets can or can't say, and the standards they can or can't use. I'm worried about the systemic effects. I have to acknowledge that it was important when Twitter expelled Trump. It had an effect on Trump's power. But would it have been right for the government to get involved in making that determination? I say no. I think we're going to have to live with the consequences of technology this latest round, in the same way that we lived with the invention of the telegraph, the invention of the radio, uh, and the invention of the television, and Europe learned to live with the invention of the printing press, although each one of those four technological information revolutions was profoundly disruptive and destabilizing. I think in the specific case of Twitter, it's not going to be Hyde Park, because it can't be. The product wouldn't work that way. I mean, even Elon Musk while he's out there saying things about he just wants to hew as close as possible to laws about free speech. And basically, if, if it's legal to say, you more or less always should be able to say it on Twitter. At the same time, he's talking about the need to get spam bots off, 
which is a kind of content moderation. He clearly understands that just letting people post whatever they want is bad for user experience because, for example, it could spam people with a bunch of stuff that they're not interested in seeing. Mm -hmm. I think what you see when you run a platform like this is that there are actually quite a lot of things like that, that when you have a service where you're showing people content they didn't specifically ask for, and that's not just about the algorithm. People get replied to on Twitter. People see retweets that are tweets from people that they don't follow. Twitter is a stream of stuff you didn't necessarily ask for. The user experience for that is going to be awful if you have literally no moderation of it. And even though Musk claims to not care about the economics of the Twitter deal, it's tens of billions of dollars. Uh, He has borrowed a lot of money to do this, much of it secured by his own stock in Tesla. Even for the richest man in the world, it's too much money to throw at this without needing the company to succeed financially. And for the company to succeed financially, you need the users and the advertisers to keep using it. So that's one of my predictions here is just that Twitter is not going to change as much as anybody is hoping or fearing, including Elon Musk himself, because it's going to run into certain business realities that require you to be not purely just speaker's corner when anyone can get up and shout whatever they want. But I thought Matt Iglesias had an interesting sort of counterintuitive point about this this week, which is he's not worried so much about what Musk is going to put on Twitter as what he might take off of it. And he talks about Elon Musk's very substantial economic exposure to China. China is both an important uh, market where they want to be able to sell Tesla vehicles and also where they manufacture them. And so he's concerned about, you know, when Twitter does things like labeling accounts as being, you know, Chinese state-sponsored media, could they come under pressure not to do that? And I think that's a significant concern. Again, it's a concern that I don't think the government can really legislate that if you have a business that entangles you with a foreign power, you can't own a media company or a technology company. I don't think there's a policy solution to this in the way that there could have been with TikTok. I think TikTok, which is owned by a Chinese entity, I think Trump was right. We should have forced them to sell it to an American entity. Unfortunately, Trump got sort of distracted from that push. But anyway, I think there is a real concern there, but it's a concern that applies in all sorts of places. The Walt Disney Company, which owns ABC News, also has relevant interests in China. And then you see these efforts in the United States, like with Ron DeSantis trying to pressure the Walt Disney company over its speech. So in theory, you could have you know one problem when you have these media companies that are associated with other large businesses, either directly or through their ownership by people who own large businesses, is you get that political pressure. Damon, I don't, I don't know what there is to be done about that, either in the Musk case, which again, remains completely theoretical. I don't think we've seen any sign that he's going to specifically with regard to Twitter do any sort of bidding of the Chinese Communist Party. But again, you know, in this system of private enterprise and free speech, people have good reasons to be concerned about what people's conflicts of interest are and what that means for what we hear as Americans. What is there to do about that? Well, I don't have any good answers for that. I do agree it's a a really big problem, and it's one that goes far beyond Twitter. I mean, uh, Iglesias' point uh, about Trump went beyond that as well, because he was just talking about the tendency of Trump while he was president to attempt to warp civil society, private companies to do his bidding. And you can do that in a corrupt authoritarian system where things are no longer happening because of the rule of law and civil society is no longer a kind of neutral space where private entities are doing whatever they wish. You start to curry favor with the person in charge of the executive branch, which could either give you favors, regulatory favors, or could investigate you and make your life really miserable. It could approve a merger or reject a merger. It could call haul you into court and impose massive fines on you. There are all kinds of ways in which the 
private sector intersects with government, that if you have a bad actor at the top who is interested in using that power to you know, manipulate media coverage of him or uh, to do harm to his enemies politically, that's what gives you a corrupt authoritarian system. And Trump tried to do that in his usual sort of inept way, fumbling way. It had some effects. Uh, but if he manages to win again, uh, he will probably be emboldened in that. And we already see other Republicans like DeSantis with Disney experimenting with this kind of thing, deciding, well, Disney's taken the wrong side of this culture war argument against me. And so I will now make their lives more difficult. I will uh, remove tax advantages that they have. But of course, note that they already have the tax advantages, which shows that this intertwining of private and public is already there at a certain baseline. The question is, will it now be manipulated for more specific political ends? If there's one brief point I could make, just looping back to Twitter, though, I just want to make sure it at least gets um, put on the table, has to do with the issue of these algorithms that we've mentioned a few times, but not really talked about. It, it is the case that if Musk takes over Twitter and tries to drop the content moderation that they've been doing, especially since the last election, and he does not change the way the algorithms function, the place will indeed become pretty intolerably bad. And that's because the algorithm as it functions now tends to highlight kind of outlier positions. So if 10 people are talking about COVID and nine of them are just repeating the kind of Faucian conventional wisdom that vaccines are good and you should wear masks on planes even if there's no mandate for it and so forth. And then one of those people is saying, actually, if you get another booster, it's going to kill you. And you say all kinds of bizarre off-the-wall conspiracy theories. That tweet will tend to be promoted more heavily than the other more standard ones. And that's how we get this kind of extremism breeding on Twitter, where like people come in on the political extremes, whether it's political or epistemological extremes, and start tweeting off-the-wall stuff. And it's not that, you know, they're going to end up as the most promoted tweet on Twitter, but relative to the other tweets, you will get more visibility than if you do the more standard position. And so Twitter does this in order to increase engagement, which then they can use to sell advertising. So if you do what Musk says he wants to do and you get rid of a lot of, not all of, but you get less content moderation, which Twitter has been using to balance out the misery of being on the platform with that <laughs> algorithm, what you're going to end up with is just the misery with none of the counteracting kind of manipulation of what you see. And so he would have to adjust the algorithm and actually make it a little bit more like a kind of public service company where, you know, maybe he could, yeah. he could experiment with a subscription model where you pay a certain amount of money and then your feed will actually be less obnoxious than it has until now. I'd note a couple of things. One is you can turn the algorithm off. 
you can set it so it just shows you the most recent tweets from the people that you follow. Now, that doesn't mean that the algorithm doesn't matter because other people who are getting that view that's serving them up the red meat, it gets to them and then they retweet it or they like it or they talk about it. And then that just increases the likelihood that it's going to get around to you some other more organic way. So the the, the algorithm matters. But I, again, I, I go back to the business issue, which is that this is a really expensive acquisition, even for Elon Musk. He needs billions of dollars every year to service the debt that he's taking out to make this acquisition. He needs it to make money. And so advertisers like engagement, but they don't like the exact sort of extreme content that you describe there. It's bad for their brands. And the Twitter user base also skews relatively to the left of the center in the United States. So if Elon Musk does a bunch of things at Twitter that alienate the advertisers, that alienate the user base, it's going to cost him money that he can't actually afford to lose, even though he is so rich. Again, I just think that's a moderating force here, that he can't really break Twitter in that way. Or if he does, it's going to cost him a lot of money. Yeah, no, I agree. And it, it could be that the confluence of all of these influences could end up being for the best for the platform. It's just that it is a complicated question about exactly how you make it better. (laughs) Right. Let's take a quick break and then we'll come back into our highlights and lowlights of the week. Well, it is spring and that means outdoor grilling. But you know what? You don't even have to grill outdoors. So we have these Omaha steaks, actually the small fillets in our freezer. I defrosted them and I made them on our cast iron skillet. And I have to tell you, they were melt in your mouth tender. They were so wonderful. And yes, it's great to grill outside, but when it's pouring, it's good to know you can still have your Omaha steaks even inside on your stovetop. So let Omaha Steaks make it easy to stock up on all your favorites. Visit omahasteaks.com, enter Beg to Differ into the search bar, and order the Spring Grill Pack today. You'll save over 50%. Plus, you'll get four Omaha Steak Burgers and four boneless chicken breasts free with your order. This package has it all. From the butcher cut filet mignon to the delicious caramel apple tartlets, Omaha Steaks delivers perfection in every single bite, every single time. And they back each order with their 100% satisfaction guarantee. Visit omahasteaks.com, type keyword beg to differ in the search bar, and order today. There's a reason why Omaha Steaks have been the leader of gourmet steaks and food for over a century. No one, I mean no one, comes close to matching the flavor, tenderness, and value of Omaha Steaks. Visit omahasteaks.com, keyword, beg to differ, and order the Spring Grill Pack today. We're back on Beg to Differ with the highlights and lowlights of the week. Linda Chavez, what's your highlight or lowlight? Well, it's a highlight, but it's a a sad highlight, and that is the passing of Orrin Hatch, who was the longest-serving Republican in the Senate. He died this week at the age of 88. He represented uh, the state of Utah for more than seven terms, and he is really an example of a conservative politician that we just don't see anymore. He was, again, like Liz Cheney bedrock conservative. I mean, the guy was hard right on a whole lot of issues, but he was also a gentleman and he was also somebody who was willing to reach across the aisle on issues and work with the opposition. He had a famous friendship with Ted Kennedy. 
they were in fact very close personal friends, even though they could not have been less alike in terms of their politics. And it matters to me especially because Orrin Hatch, when I was nominated to be the staff director of the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights in 1983, the hearing that took place, it was a long hearing. I think it went for about eight hours. And I was a registered Democrat at the time, nominated as a Democrat. My three fellow appointees uh, to the commission at the time were all registered Democrats, but the Democrats, including the uh, ranking Democrat on the Senate Judiciary Committee at the time, uh, one fellow named Joe Biden, he was very much in opposition to us. Uh, And Orrin Hatch took the chair from Strom Thurmond during those hearings and allowed us to have a very productive uh, hearing and to get us through those hearings. And had he not done that, I think he wouldn't even allow himself a bathroom break in order to uh, continue to uh, hold that hearing. He was just a wonderful man, and he is sorely missed by those who knew him. But more importantly, uh, he should be missed for what he represented as somebody who took his politics very seriously, but did not let politics govern the way he treated other human beings. Bill Galston, uh, what do you want to highlight this week? Well, in the 19th century, liberalism and nationalism were often twinned. In the 20th century, liberalism was more frequently associated with a kind of internationalism or even universalism. I think the wheel is turning again, and liberals are beginning to understand that nationalism is not necessarily the enemy of liberalism and indeed can be one of its major supports. The latest to make this argument is Frank Fukuyama in the most recent issue of Foreign Affairs. And it is not only an article, but an argument that I can commend to my fellow liberals as a way of helping to strengthen and defend their beleaguered creed. Damon Linker, what's your highlight or lowlight? Well, this week I'm going to cheat a little bit and not just focus on uh, one uh, item that I've read that uh, I thought was worth reading, but actually on a, a writer who's been on a good roll lately. That's Jonathan Chait at New York Magazine. I believe he's been a guest here on Beg to Differ in the past, and he's done a number of very uh, good pieces over the last week with very good uh, high-level analysis, but also with a fair amount of humor uh, that I have appreciated in some of them. I'll just highlight by naming the titles, uh, three of them. One is, in DeSantis's Banana Republic, corporations must support the party, Orbanism in Florida. That was a very good piece in New York Magazine. Uh, Then another one, Political Correctness is Losing, How the Democratic Party Fought Back Against Deliberalism. And definitely the most amusing and witty of them just earlier this week, Madison Cawthorn is trying to commit every possible scandal, the Republican congressman's inspiring quest to shoot the moon. That one is especially amusing because Cawthorn has been in the news, not just frequently, but it seems almost every single day uh, over the last few weeks with a different kind of scandal. Sometimes he's caught with a, a, a loaded firearm at the gate at an airport, and then at other times he's 
photographed wearing lingerie uh, with women at what looks like a sex party of some kind. Uh, he looks like he's having a lot of fun in some of them and looks pretty miserable in others. I'm not really sure what's going on. That was, in fact, a, a scavenger hunt on a Royal Caribbean cruise called the, the Quest Scavenger Hunt. Oh, was it uh, really? We, we, we figured that, that photo is not from a sex party. It is, in fact, from like an extremely <laughs> middle American institution. Ah, very interesting. But, well, but he was in lingerie. He was in lingerie and and for a party that makes a lot about uh, gender and transgenderism and, and demonizing a lot of that stuff. Uh, it was at least amusing to see his picture there uh, wearing lingerie and surrounded by uh, two smiling women. So uh, Madison seems to be doing something. Uh, I, I'm not really sure if I would say he's doing it right, but uh, Shade has a very amusing take on it in New York Magazine. He's been good lately. My highlight for this week is about the weather. It's warming up. Uh, we're we're getting. I mean, it's in spring for a while, but in the New York area where I live, it's finally actually starting to feel like spring. And and part of why I like this time of year is I'm a big cocktail fan. And as the weather warms up, that's an excuse for me to start making sour drinks again. Uh, in, in the winter, I'll tend to drink martinis and Manhattans, other things that are really spirit forward. But as the weather warms up, you can you know get out and juice your limes and lemons and use use some syrups and, and, and liquors and, and make some delicious drinks. Now, the, the most popular sour drink by far in the United States, I believe, is the margarita. People drink margaritas all summer, and I, and I like a good margarita, but I, I would encourage people to look out a little bit, try, try some new options there, uh, because I think that people, they sort of get in that margarita mode. There are a lot of really other great things that you can make uh, with rum or gin or, or other spirits. I'm particularly partial to a Mai Tai. Mai Tai is light rum, dark rum, orange liqueur, or, orgeat, which is an, an almond syrup, actually, and then lime juice. And now it's, it's really important with these drinks. You have to squeeze the juice fresh. Do not use lime juice or lemon juice out of a bottle. It does not taste as good. Even Ina Garten, who will normally tell you that store-bought is fine, she will tell you that you must squeeze your own citrus juice if you're making these cocktails. Um, but it's really, it's just a, a delightful late spring or summer drink. It uh, really makes me feel like I'm back in Hawaii without actually having to go there. Um, and so that's something that I'm, that I'm really looking forward to at this moment, uh, this time of the year. I also had a really interesting conversation uh, with Peter Suderman uh, for the Very Serious podcast this week. Peter is an editor at Reason Magazine, but he's also a big cocktail aficionado. He writes his own newsletter about cocktails. Uh, and We had a really interesting conversation that, that got me some new tips uh, that are going to influence a little bit the way I make those sour drinks this summer, try to up the flavor for those a little bit. So that's made me extra excited for that. That is all for this week. I want to thank Linda Chavez, Bill Galston, and Damon Linker. I've had so much fun having this conversation. I want to thank Mona Charon and The Bulwark for this opportunity to come in and guest host this show and have this conversation for all of you. Uh, and I want to thank our producer, Katie Cooper, and our engineer and editor, Joe Armstrong. Mona will be back next week. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening.